Welcome, everyone, to Dead Talk Live. And tonight, we are joined by writer, director, actor, Jason William Lee. Jason, thank you so much for being on our show. How are you doing tonight? Really great. Thanks for having me, John. Appreciate it. Oh, it is my pleasure to talk uh, with you. And we have a lot to talk about. And, you know, my first question to you is... Was it writing and directing that led you to acting, or was it the other way around? It was actually the other way around, totally. I, I started out in, as an actor, or a wannabe actor, I guess you'd say. I moved from Vancouver, or sorry, moved from Edmonton in 2000 uh, to be an actor. And I did that for a while, and uh, I realized, oh, I wasn't really making any headway. So I started making short films with some friends, you know, really started to enjoy getting behind the camera and especially writing. I, I, I think writing's my, my favorite thing out of, of out of the three. But uh, yeah, I know I love everything about film. I think I just became a film fanatic as a little kid. And I remember memorizing lines from movies so I could get through classes in high school and just like instead of having to sit there. So it was always kind of in me, I guess, to film but in Edmonton it didn't seem like it was a possibility so I had to move out out west yeah 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 and so you're in the United States right now no no I'm in Vancouver oh so Vancouver okay. I just moved it's like Hollywood North right it was oh, yeah. uh, our big film hub in Canada is here in Toronto or in Toronto but yeah mainly do a lot of film and television here as well yeah the two hot spots in Canada of course Toronto like you mentioned and Vancouver Toronto more recently, I remember back in the 90s, almost every TV show was being shot in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. Like, huge. Yeah. I mean, still, still a lot of all the DC and Marvel stuff, like the spinoffs are all shooting here, and a lot of them in, in Toronto as well, so it's kind of a, a competition. But, uh, yeah, we got lots of, lots of great film and t- TV up here. And, you know, in today's virtual world, you do not need to be in L.A. or even New York. <laughs> to excel in this industry. Do you agree with that? I, I do, it's, and it's changing, especially since the pandemic. Like, I, I had to quit acting for a while because of, you know, uh, after Funhouse, I kind of needed <laughs> to go and get a, a job to make some money. And uh, so it was hard to, as an actor, any actor would know, before pandemic times, it's like you needed to have a job where, you know, you ha- were available any mm-hmm. day of the week during the day to go out, you know, for a couple hours a day and, and audition, which is totally inconvenient as a, you know, trying to have a job. So you're either, exactly. you're either like a, a waiter or a valet or you're doing something, you're independently wealthy. And I was none of those. So now that the p- pandemic happened, I kind of have been able to get back into, I just got back from an audition right before I got on here. It actually wow. the first, my first in person audition since the pandemic started. Wow. So that was interesting. That's crazy. So uh, going back to the writing and directing, how important is it to you as a director to be able to direct the stuff that you wrote? You know, I've everything I've, I, you kind of make your own work. And so uh, everything I've written, I've directed. I've never let anyone else direct it, but I would be totally open. Like I've written some scripts that, Seriously, it would cost ridiculous amounts of money to make. I just, I just wanted to do a little. I've written like fourteen scripts, and I think the from the least expensive one you could do for like Funhouse or The Evil in Us. I did one for my first feature was like two hundred thousand American, 
and I've written stuff that would literally cost two hundred million dollars American to make. And wow. I know, I know that I would never probably be allowed to direct that until I've proven myself a lot more as a director. But I would, you know, if a guy like Zack Snyder or somebody wanted to come along and direct my stuff, I'd be more than happy. You know, I mean, two hundred million—that's like on the level of the Marvel Cinema Universe. It is. I wrote this one script, it's called The Nazi, and it was one of my just passion projects where it's about, you know, another planet, creatures, war, it's like 300 meets Lord of the Rings meets, you know, it's, I love movies like that, and I, I wrote a couple movies like that, but I am also a realist in the sense that I know I won't be able to direct those movies per se at this time, I'm hoping to one day, but... Hey, you never know. You never, you never know. know, right? Crazier things have happened. How big uh, is action to you? Because you mentioned like 300, uh, big action film, great film. Uh, when you're writing your scripts, do you try to incorporate a lot of that sci-fi action into them? I Honestly, I like some action, but I, I, I don't like long action sequences that go on forever. I'm not a big like action James Bond kind of film guy. I, I love story. I love characters. Um, so even in the stuff that I've written that's bigger budget, I think it's really more about the characters and their, uh, you know, quest for, you know, their character arc and trying to get reach their goals. And all my stuff is pretty dark, too. So it's like I got – I've written a lot of them that I wrote like 15, 10 years ago, and I, I was really upset when I watched <laughs> – I wasn't upset, but it's like when uh, I watched Game of Thrones and they were doing the whole thing where they kill off all their main characters. I'm mm -hmm. like, damn, I was doing that like 15 years ago, but um, now it's become something that's more popular, right? Yeah. So yeah, it, but it, it annoys yeah. the fans. It upsets them when it happens, but just let, let a little time pass and then they realize, you know, it's critical for the surviving yeah. characters that death is to propel the surviving character story arc forward. So, you know, it, it has become more popular. And a lot of shows like Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead has been doing it for 11 years now. So yeah. it's, it's definitely a trend that's, that's picking up. Now, let's reverse the previous question. Uh, how comfortable would you be directing somebody else's writing? Um, I would be comfortable. Uh, I've done it once. I did a TV pilot a few years ago, a friend of mine, uh, Dave Peniak and Matthew Lutz did a, a TV series called The High Five about five friends who who start a weed grow up. So it was actually, the timing was really good. I, I know it's been probably done a lot of times since then, but it was basically like a, a silly comedy about just five friends trying to work their way through, um, you know, trying a, a weed dispensary basically and mm -hmm. and it was fun it was a lot of fun to do i had a acting part in it which was great i played a total douchebag mm -hmm. uh, banker uh, which is always a good time but it was the first thing i've ever directed that wasn't my own writing so it was it was fun it was interesting um i would definitely be down for it now would you say the majority of your writing stuff that has gotten picked up that hasn't gotten picked up revolves around horror the darker nature of the world uh, no, actually, I, like I said, I've written about 14 scripts, and I'd say three of them have been horror. Um, so in the beginning, I kind of just wanted to, when I moved to Vancouver in 2000, I wanted to, my goal was to write 
a script from every genre so then I could go and get a, a writer's agent and you know that was the goal and I, I was very naive in how fast and you know how long it takes to, to yeah. get yourself you know some people you know can do it fast but my my trip has been like a slow and steady you know wins the race hopefully but uh, so my but my first scripts were drama my drama is my favorite type of movie and then comedy and horror I love I love movies right I just mm -hmm. love good movies but the only reason I got into horror really was I had hooked up with my producing partner now Michael Giori and uh, uh, back in 2012 they needed content for their they wanted to make a feature and I you know he was just an acquaintance of mine and I saw that he was doing some cool stuff with movies and we had a lunch and I shared a few scripts with him and he really liked them and so we got a small uh, $150,000 um, investor and we looked at all my scripts that I had and we're like there's no way in hell we can make one of these because you know some of them were like 10 million dollar scripts and some of them I think the lowest one we could have done would be like 1.5 million and there's just no way with 150 grand I wanted to waste yeah. trying to do a movie that big so I wrote a, a horror movie we agreed that horror movie would probably be the best way to get an ROI for our investor and I wrote The Evil in Us which is a pretty contained horror movie is my first feature I, we filmed it in 2014 and it got released in 2016 and then for Funhouse we got into Sidges I don't know if you you probably know Sidges Film Festival mm -hmm. it's like a big horror festival in Spain we got into like a midnight screening out there uh, uh, for the evil in us and our a guy named Henrik um, who's a movie producer saw it and he really loved it and he gave me a call and basically said I want to make this movie and this was the idea for Funhouse and I thought it was all bullshit to begin with because you know how you get approached by someone oh, oh I want to make a movie in this industry you'll, if you're in it for long enough you're just, you know that you get so much crap you know yeah. it's I want to do this I got that and they got the money and I don't believe anything until the cameras are rolling anymore yeah but, uh, Henrik was the real deal and uh, he got it together and we made he he was able to get one of the Skarsgård brothers, Walter Skarsgård, for mm -hmm. the star of Funhouse. And that really, you know, made us, uh, got us the, the ability to make that movie because we got early distribution. Nice. Nice. And, and yeah. we're, we're going to be getting into Funhouse oh, and yeah. The Evil in Us in, in a little bit. I just got to ask you one more question before we get to that. Uh, now, with Hollywood entertainment evolving because of the COVID pandemic, uh, do you feel like if you write something in the horror genre, which is generally known to be cheaper to make, cheaper to film compared to some other genres, you have a better chance of it being picked up? Well, the idea was because we, for The Evil in Us, although we had fantastic actors, um, none of them at that time were, were big names, so... I think horror, you can get away with more than any other uh, genre to not need big names because, you know, I guess Squid Game is an example. Although I'm mm -hmm. sure those actors in Squid Game are huge in Korea. Yeah. I don't think they're very well known worldwide, but it doesn't matter because, you know, it became a phenomenon as we know. So I think that was the kind of catalyst to that. It's like, well, let's do something where 
We don't need big name actors to sell. Now, what I've learned since then, you still need big name actors to sell movies at markets, unfortunately. But unless you have something like a Blair Witch or a Paranormal Activity that just blows the audience away and you get lots of lots of marketing money. But Blair Witch and Paranormal Activity, those are the exception to the rule. Oh, I mean, yeah. those are two of the most profitable movies of all time. I think Paranormal Activity is the most profitable movie of all time, and we all know it became a multi-billion dollar franchise that launched Bloomhouse. And yeah. Like, so yeah, things can happen. But I think that was only like a $30,000 film right in the beginning. So it's uh, like it's, No, I think it was ten. Exactly. So yeah. that shows you you can get there. You can get lucky, like not lucky. They did an amazing job at creating something, but they also had a really interesting marketing platform. That's, were, I, that's yeah. what, yeah, that's what I say about Paranormal Activity. They nailed the marketing. Well, they did. The, didn't they do the whole reaction? Yeah, theater? the theater and people like covering their faces. They, I don't think they showed a single scene from the movie in the trailer. No, it's smart, smart. Like yeah. that, that was new, right back then. Yeah, it was smart. And the way they marketed that, I mean, hats off. And the movie, of course, you got to back it up at the end. And the movie lived up to the hype. Now, you you mentioned Funhouse. Uh, it's centered around eight celebrities who take part in this online reality game contest. Sort of like Survivor, you know, getting voted off the Big island. Brother. Yeah, Big, Big Brother. Yeah. Uh, so where did you come up with the concept of with the celebrities making it virtual online and combining all those elements with like Big Brother and Survivor and all you know and all those types of shows? Well, actually, it was it was Henrik's idea, the producer from Sweden. Uh, like he had a very basic kernel of an idea that was he wanted to make a movie about uh, like kind of. Instagram stars or celebrities that get invited to compete in an online reality show. That's pretty much all he, he kind of gave us the gave us the basic gist. And he said, would you write it and direct it? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. You know, I'm never going to give up an opportunity, even though that type of movie isn't my forte necessarily. I, like I said before, like all good movies and even violent movies I have no problem with. But I was a little nervous because it's it's like a. It's a very, it's kind of a disturbing movie, you know, it's mm -hmm. it's like Saw in a way, and, and although I enjoyed the first Saw or whatever for what it was, I it's not my cup of tea necessarily, so I was a little nervous because I didn't want to go necessarily down that road because it was such a disturbing concept, but like I said, I needed some more experience as a director, so I, you know, take what you can get kind of thing, but I was really happy because he gave me a lot of leeway with like I wanted to have like a, some social commentary on you know you know desensitization to violence and voyeurism and and you know how kind of that's happening on the internet as we speak in 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 some ways right and exactly misinformation and all this stuff right exactly now you know in Funhouse uh, a lot of the characters represent a lot of the social media stereotypes that we see out there today you know what is called influencers in today's mm -hmm. world okay everybody's out there to try to get as many followers as they can because they have this misconception that if they reach a certain number of followers in their head boom they're rich and that's just not the case 
No. Now, how were you able to balance those character stereotypes without falling into that satire trap where it's pushed a little too far? Well, I guess it depends who you ask if we went too far, but um, I tried to make them all relatable and it's, it's and, and have some humanity because that's the fact about all influencers as well. They are people, just like actors. It's yeah. Like, you, people think they know somebody because they see them online all the time or they see them in movies and the case that's never the case as you know it's like you meet your that's why meeting your heroes or your people that you know you think are one way it's always totally different mm -hmm. but everybody's human you know and everybody has a story unfortunately with influencers and with instagram and, and all these platforms they're putting their most you know ideal story forward and everybody knows that's not necessarily no. the case, right? But no. it doesn't. That doesn't mean it doesn't affect people. Regardless, even if you know all this is bullshit, you still get affected by it. I know I do. Me um, too. And let me. The perfect. It's not even with influencers. Uh, yeah. Like Facebook, every you know, non-celebrities, friends, families, they always try to put their best uh, face forward in regards to their family. Look at us. We're the ideal family on vacation and whatever. And I know people who they know rationally that it's this person, you know, laying out what they want to lay out. It still affects you. Oh, why, man, we need to go on more vacations. We need to do more of this. And it really screws with you psychologically. Oh, totally. And I'm guilty of it as well. It's like the only time I really post stuff on online is about uh, movies and stuff like that that mm -hmm. I'm doing to try and promote them. And I know you have to do that. But it makes people, honestly, some people think that I have this glamorous, like I'm making all this money, I'm doing all these things. And that is totally not the case. You know, anybody who's done a movie or indie film knows that it's like anything. It's like the music industry, you see just the tip of the t iceberg that are making all the money. It's the same with uh, indie film. You yeah. know, you, you can make a living. I'm you know, hoping to get there soon, someday. But the people you see that are really up there, it's all the same people, right? And exactly. then you get breakout, breakout uh, movies or whatnot, like Squid Game or whatnot. But that guy apparently was broke just before Squid Game, and I understand exactly how that works, right? Yeah, I got a perfect personal example. I told one of my distant cousins that I got a distribution deal, and this show is going to be distributed on television. And he's like, oh, man, now that you're rich, can you buy me, like, this Porsche? I'm like, exactly. oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's crazy. And, like, and you have to be crazy, honestly, to make indie movies a little bit because... Like, I love it. I'll never stop now. Now I'm pop committed because like, I went to university, I did all these things, and then I'm like, I hate everything I'm doing in the workforce, so I moved here to be an actor. And that was 21 years ago, and yeah. I thought it would be like six months and I'd be a star. You know, mm -hmm. I'm totally naive. Yeah. 20 years later, I'm still just grinding away to try and make movies, and I love it, and I won't ever stop, but that is the reality, you know. Exactly. It is. A lot of people just think because you're in front of a camera, you're automatically rich. And that's not the case. Now, going back to Funhouse, what were some of the challenges you faced in creating the imagery and the look of the film, which was really great? It was very entertaining. Did you face any challenges in bringing that vision 
to us as the audience? Yeah, no, it was the first time I'd ever done something where we actually built a set. We built the Funhouse in a, in a warehouse out in Langley, which is a, a suburb of Vancouver out east. And we basically, like, because we were, we knew we couldn't find any locations that fit the bill. So we're like, okay, we have to, because you open up a lot of possibilities when yeah. you build your own set, obviously. You build it for filming, so you give yourself room, you do this, that, and the other. So that was the first time I'd ever done that, but that comes with major challenges. You're building a house basically inside a warehouse. And obviously all the walls are this thin and they look, you know, they everything looks like it's solid, but you could like knock it over if you hit it. Um, yeah, so that was a huge challenge, uh, but our production design team really, uh, you know, got to the challenge and it was a, it was an amazing experience just all around I, I was going for something a little different in my mind but everything changes as you go along um i was going more ex machina kind of sterilized feeling but we didn't obviously have that kind of budget um where it's there's no wind or there is no windows in funhouse either but i wanted to be extremely claustrophobic and uh, but I really like what they did. In yeah, the yeah, it was amazing. And you mentioned there is social commentary in this movie on how the audience is as guilty as you know the killers, the killer in this because they are egging it on in a way. How important was the the social commentary of Funhouse? Important in getting it across to the viewers. To me, that was like paramount because. I didn't want to go into something just to have a, you know, tortured porn, like killing for the sake of killing. I don't, you know, I needed to have a reason behind why this guy's doing it. Um, and although I would, you know, it's extreme, but I think some of his viewpoints are valid. Mm -hmm. You know, in this day and age, like we talked about, and I have nothing against celebrities or um, influencers. I'm like, hey, if I could work a job in, mar like, like I said, I was in an office job in a cubicle hating it. So I tried to be an actor. So if I can go be a TikToker and make a million dollars, like why not? That's amazing. Exactly. Good life, having fun doing it. Unfortunately, like you said, there's only a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage that are ever gonna make money. So, but like his Nero, the villain's you know, basic messages, the, the scientists, the physicists, the person curing uh, disease should be the a one who's who's uh, the influencer, right? Who's getting mm -hmm. the accolades? Unfortunately, it's about sex tapes and you know yeah. uh, voyeurism and and doing the most crazy, outrageous stuff. So it's just I think it's the wild west of, of social media that we're gonna look back at this time and be like, holy crap, we lived through that because we basically have, have just breached the surface of what's happening, and there's a lot mm -hmm. of dangers out there. And there's gonna be a time I think in the near future when unfortunately. The government it has going to have to step in. They're already looking at what's happening with Facebook and whatnot because these platforms can be used so with, for nefarious purposes and oh, uncontrolled, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. And people argue, well, that's, uh, you know, you're going against freedom of speech, but guess what? When it gets to the point where, like, elections are being stolen, like 2016 or whatever's happened, or where, where misinformation is used and weaponized, then you got some problems on your hands and a lot of people are going to get hurt. Yeah. And so I don't know. I don't know the answer, but it's coming. And these social media companies, I mean, they're not equipped. No, no company can be equipped. Facebook, for example, to handle 
two and a half, three billion active users a month. I mean, that's ridiculous. Uh, that's insane. Uh, so in this film, the pace of the film is very good. It's very consistent. It's a nice buildup. Uh, and it, it's the, the pacing is kept very tight is the term that I would use throughout the film. Uh, when you watch the final product, what did you feel about, you know, how the film paced itself and, and kept attention going throughout the entire film? Well, we were, uh, the pacing, this is, our distributor kind of had their say in our pacing because they want it, they always want it shorter, right? Um, mm -hmm. They wanted it an hour and a half and it ended up being an hour and 45 minutes. So we actually went longer than they wanted. And my, my thinking is a movie should be as long as it needs to be. That's just, you know, the way it is. And I thought that trying to knock that down to 130 or a 90 minute movie would be almost been impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, the first cut of the film, I'm the editor too, so it was two and a half hours. <laughs> so I don't know how that happened because it was only a 108-page script. So I don't know, something went wrong there. But um, it was really long. But one side note was there was a whole side story about an FBI investigation. And I, I was one of the lead FBI agents. So I actually cut my entire line, cut my entire part. I was like actually quite a large part. And I... I cut the entire FBI side story, which which got us down quite a bit. Um, and that was for a bunch of reasons, like mainly because the FBI office that we had didn't look legit. Um, unfortunately, you know, and that comes down to budget. It just mm -hmm. didn't look real. Like this is supposed to be a worldwide investigation, and and you know, we we didn't look like it it was uh, had that scope that yeah. we needed. So unfortunately, we had to cut it, and that's okay. I'm not worried. I think it paces better because of it. But it, a lot of people online are like, "Well, where's? How come the police didn't find them or the cops?" I went into great detail in the other story about how uh, the Nero, the villain, was hiding the signal using Tor networks and onion routing. I talked to a hacker. It was all legit. He was using like onion routing through. Mm -hmm. uh, wind farms and different like really cool hacking lingo that i had no idea about that you could do but it it, it is possible to hide a signal on the internet oh It'd yeah never be found like people think well they'll just track it down not no. if you know what you're doing no so that's the kind of scary thing as well about you know internet and <laughs> dark and, the dark and they made it easy like you mentioned tor it's a browser you just yeah. you go on to tor and you use it as a browser it's not the regular dot-com sites. They're, they're called Onions on Tor. Yeah. And you can disguise your identity, and a lot of bad stuff goes on oh, in the dark and way. I, and people don't understand that, and that's, mm -hmm. like, the truth. I tried to explain it. I took all the FBI side story and put it into one newscast with my buddy, uh, Betesh, uh, who is an actor in most of my films, but he basically just did a... Kind of explanation as a, a hacker, good hacker, that was working with the police to explain what was happening. But yeah, yeah. Now, uh, you know, touching on the uh, antagonist, the villain of uh, Funhouse, there's a lot of him that is sort of kept uh, <laughs> mysterious about him. Was that done intentionally for you to leave it up to the viewer to sort of fill in the blanks? Yeah, no, I think he definitely, obviously, he has to keep his identity uh, hidden. 
Um, so we use the panda as avatar as, you know, the, the kind of mm-hmm. host of the show that was kind of interacting with the players and with the people on the internet. So, um, yeah, definitely wanted to keep that as much of a secret as possible, but, um, he also wants to be seen as well. So it's, I, I kind of, that was where the tongue in cheek ending happened there. So, you know. Now, it's pretty interesting in the film how it's done democratically and voted on on how people should be killed. Um, how did you come up with that to incorporate that into this? You know, it, the movie, if you break it down and you take the story, it really is genius. It is unique in its own way. Uh, with the whole democratic voting system on how to kill people off, uh, how did that come to you? Well, it's funny you say it's unique because I thought it was unique because I'd never seen anything like it. But if you go online, apparently I'm ripping off every movie in the world that I've never heard of from Japan. But yeah, anyways, yeah, don't listen people, to people that. Are, people are already saying, you guys ripped off Squid Game. I'm like, we came out three years before Squid Game. Yeah. But you know, anyways, it's all good. But um, yeah, I think we just wanted to, we had the eight celebrities because we couldn't go for budgetary reasons. We couldn't do more. And less would have been, I don't think, enough. So... We wanted to come up with the challenges for each person that kind of uh, went with their personality, right? So yeah. Ula's character had to do the memory game where she had to look at, find, match all her selfies. And then basically Kat had to do the chess thing and um, the YouTuber had to do the human piñata. Yeah. So we had to come up with, you know, the different uh, challenges, which... By the way, the producer came up with that one, the human pinata, my my producer, Mike. So I'm not the only depraved weirdo around here. But, um, yeah, no, it was, it was a lot of fun to come up with the, the challenges and the, you know, actual, uh, I guess, punishments that they come up with. They're, they're pretty fun. Now, on top of writing, directing, and appearing, uh, you're also an editor. You, uh, how big of a role did you have in cutting the the final version of this film? Every step I wow. edited a piece of this film. Yeah, I didn't have any assistant. Well, Michael, my producer, helped me leaps and bounds with visual effects. You know, dealing with the visual effects people and like getting it all put together. But as far as cutting it, I cut I cut all my movies hundred percent. Yeah. Now, is that something that you self-taught yourself over the years? Did you go to school for, you know, because editing is a skill. Yeah, no, it was one of those things where it's like you're doing it because of nobody else will do it kind of thing. I had a friend when I first moved to Vancouver, and this is where I say we started making short films. He was going, my friend Matt, um, who's a VFX artist now out in Montreal, very talented guy, super talented. Um, He was going to school out here when I first moved here in the in the film program out at, uh, it was called AI at the time, mm-hmm. Arts Institute, I think it's changed, but uh, he started doing short films and he needed an actor and I'm like, I'll act. And, you know, we got, so I was just like, I'll be your actor. And then I sat in with him on a bunch of editing sessions and he basically taught me how to edit the gist of it. And I just started to, every, after he moved away and I had to do it myself, I'm like, oh, crap, he moves. Now I have to do it myself. Um, so I started doing it and editing, and it's just practice, practice, practice. And Now I've edited, like, so much stuff. It's ridiculous. Yeah. 
I'm an amateur. Uh, well, I've been doing it for 20 years. I, I guess I mean, I'm not getting paid for it. So I guess I am an amateur, but people don't Me. realize to, let's say you have a five minute clip and you want to edit it, basic, add some facts, whatever. That can take up to three to four hours. I mean, it's a process and it the takes editor, a lot of time. The editor is the unsung hero because the editor almost puts in more work than anybody in the entire film because let's say you have a 20, like for Funhouse 24 day shoot, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And I edited for six months. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's brutal. <laughs> you know, those editors who aren't getting paid, it's brutal. And I've been there. I, most of the editing throughout my life, I didn't get paid for It's uh, it's a hard, hard skill to learn and it's underpaid and it's underappreciated. I think. Now, do you know, I've never asked this question to any of our guests, and we've had former editors, I mean, we've had editors on our show, uh, like the big, not big, but medium, good-sized budget films, when it comes time to the editing, uh, do you know, like, what is the normal size team to edit, like, let's say, a $5 million movie? Uh, how many people would be involved in the cutting of the final product? I think you'll have your main editor, but first you'll get some, usually they get somebody to do a, like a, a rough cut basically for the editor, mm -hmm. like a, put it all together. It's not necessarily the rough cut, but they compile all the scenes and whatnot and put it into a very loose cut. And then the editor will come in with, I think at least one or two assistant editors. And honestly, I, I couldn't tell you because I've never yeah. had a situation where I've been, had an assistant so yeah i i know that they do like if you look in the credits of like bigger movies there's like a team of editors oh yeah and uh yeah i know that would be wonderful <laughs> well know? yeah i mean it's awesome because like i said you wrote it directed and we know when it when a film does go into post-production it's usually the director that sits in with the editor to make sure everything is great you were the whole package so you didn't have anybody yeah. over you know looking over your shoulder and that helps. It can be great, but I always want to, you know, I always, it's not that I don't trust anybody because I'm sure there's thousands of better editors than me, but I just don't trust that somebody's going to scour the footage the way I am to get the best mm -hmm. because I'm meticulous at those, like, I'm a perfectionist in that sense. I'm not really in life other than like in filmmaking, but I go through every single second of every performance. And then I even like Frankenstein stuff together that shouldn't work, but it, sometimes you need to, right? And I sometimes like take audio from one clip and put it because I like the sound of it and put it with other clips. So I'm really meticulous in that sense and hopefully it shows. And that's not to say I wouldn't be like happy to hand over the editing reins to somebody else because that's a lot of time. It's you're a sitting, lot. Six could, months is a lot. You could be writing another script, you know, when you're sitting there editing but uh yeah no I, I just i love doing that as well seeing it all come come together nice now in funhouse uh how much practical effects how much cgi was used in the film you know what there was a really awesome uh mix of both like we had uh, uh practical effects artist michelle grady who did all like the practical effects like the arm rip and mm -hmm. the acts, like they were all practical, and then we enhanced them with a team uh, uh, out of Mexico who did all of our visual effects, just went above and beyond. For our budget, they just 
killed it. Um, we had like 400, 400 visual effects in this movie, which is ridiculous. Like, we had no idea how much work it was going to be. Like, I had to end up doing visual effects too. Like, I did all the news backgrounds and all that stuff. And I learned, you know, so it was a big learning curve for me as well. Um, and that was awesome. But yeah, no, the. I think that's the best way to do it because pure CG, unless you have like top dollar, like you're doing Lord of the Rings stuff, it's very obvious sometimes to see if it's just pure CG. Whereas if you mix practical effects with the CG just to, to complement it, I think it can really, really help a lot. Yeah. I'm not going to name the movie, but I saw a movie, a very high budget horror movie recently that you know you could tell they had the money and they used a lot of cgi uh and by the end of the film because of the the amount of cgi they used it just became really apparent yeah you know it's like uh you know this is me guessing it's like gee we have an extra two million dollars laying around in the budget you know we might as well spend it and let's just put it into the cgi effect so your your feeling is too much cgi can detrimentally can be a detriment to a film well a good example i think everybody probably i thought it was a good film but i think it took you out of it was uh, i am legend okay where they went for full cgi on the 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 zombies or whatever the mm-hmm. majors were and although it worked sometimes some other times it just seemed cartoonish you yeah. know or video game ish you know so i think they should have gone for more practical effects and then complemented it with the cg when you needed it um but well, you know yeah i agree i could totally see that so let's go back now now you said the evil and us was your first feature film that you meant that was the first film that you directed, correct? The first, yeah, one I got the first feature that I got up produced, basically. Yeah, and you got and you you also wrote that and you also directed that, and that is a story which involves uh, cannibalism in it. Uh, how do you feel uh, looking back on it since it's been? what, like six years now or more when you actually shot it. Uh, how do you feel about, you know, when looking back on your first feature film, uh, now that some time has passed, how do you feel about The Evil in Us? Are you proud of that, of how that movie turned out? You know, it's funny. I watched it the other day for the first time in probably a couple of years because it's on Prime, mm-hmm. Amazon Prime, so I figured I should watch it. Uh, and I was... I'm like I said, I'm a perfectionist, so I always want. I'm like, why can't it be as good as 28 Days Later, you know? But then it's like, we didn't have, we have one 28th the budget of 28 Days Later, unfortunately. So it's like, I'm very proud of what we did with what we had. I really am. I think that it was super ambitious to do a movie like that for like a couple hundred grand. Mm-hmm. Um, with, you know, in the beginning it seemed like oh, it was a contained movie, but then it we in the end it had like thirty characters, like thirty uh, actors and ten locations. Whereas like we were gonna start it with one location, six actors, and that's it. So it went pretty crazy, but I'm super proud of it. It was one of the funnest experiences I had. I had lost my father of about two months before I directed that movie, and I was really worried that. I was going to 
fail and ruin the movie. But it became like this kind of uh, cathartic uh, healing experience for me. Just, I delved into it and it helped me get through that time whereas I thought oh this is going to be the worst experience I'm not ready to do this I'm grieving but yeah it turned out to be a really helpful experience I really yeah. enjoyed uh, that movie and um, and did you mention I believe earlier in this interview that that was your, really your first dive into horror it was I'd, I'd written one other horror before called Hell's Ridge which I'm still trying to get off the ground. I think that for me is my, because I want to get stuff off the ground. Like I wrote that as, okay, this is a horror movie I would want to see, I, will, I would want to make. But realistically, that movie would cost like $5 million to do correctly, I think. You could probably do it for a little less, but $5 because it's got some CG, it's got a lot of action. Not a lot of action, but it's like mm -hmm. the evil dead on steroids um, taking place in an insane asylum. Um, which I think is a fantastic concept. I, I optioned it a while back, but nothing ever happened with it, and I won a contest with it. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Um, Evil in Us, yeah. So it was. I didn't have any horror writing experience except for Hell's Ridge, and uh, we discussed it with my producing partners, and we're like, write something s small we can do for 150 grand. We ended up getting like 200 grand, but I wrote it specifically like, okay, we we got to do this really for, for the cheap, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was. like It's like about a group of friends who go to a cabin on the 4th of July and they are partying and taking, you know, doing cocaine. And unbeknownst to them, the cocaine was laced with a neurotropic virus that was manufactured by the government to, like, we got a lot of flack online for that because it was a right-wing senator that was behind it. He was vying for a presidency and uh, he created this drug in order to create chaos in, in the world. And he was going to be the savior that gets the antidote or fixes it. But it was also during the time of bath salts, so I'd seen some yeah. really crazy stuff and heard some really weird stuff about bath salts, so it kind of had that... Uh, feel to it but one thing that I still haven't seen in other movies that I think is unique to Evil in Us is the fact that when the people, the zombies or the they get the virus they don't only go after like people who aren't on it, they go after whoever's nearest so they have yeah. zombies fighting zombies and I think that was a unique twist that gets overlooked in that yeah. and it's all, they come down from it so it's like a really bad hang, a really bad drug trip that they come off of and they just realize they've eaten their friend it's like mm -hmm. That's like, talk about you're that. right that is unique and it's not in fact i don't remember besides the evil in us really seeing that anywhere else there's quite a bit of gore in the evil in us uh which is great uh do you th looking back again do you feel like you balanced the gore nicely with the story uh or if you had a redo would you have cut it back a little bit oh Honestly, yeah, I think it had a nice amount. I think I would have gone further with the, you know, because you only had so much time. Like, some of those sequences, we basically had to, like, shoot so fast. Like, some of the fight sequences with the zombies, that was, like, a couple hours. Whereas, you know, yeah. I know now, like, you need time. Like, even in Funhouse, like, our big, huge fight scene, we did in, like, six or seven hours. Like, you need three four days to do a kick-ass scene. And I think we did an amazing job. Mm-hmm. 
I think time, I think that's what I would like more of. In it. I think that's with any indie filmmaker, they want more time to make it. But I would go, I would have gone darker and a little bit, I would have delved into more of the psychology behind ha- what, you know, your best friends and you're tearing each other apart. And I think that, I wish I would have gone a little delve deep into the psychology behind that because that would be very devastating if, for a person to do that. Yeah, and I know. I know we did to an extent, like when the character wakes up, he's basically seen what he's done and he tries to basically kill himself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, walking away from uh, directing The Evil on Us, it being your first job as directing a feature film, what did you come away completely surprised learning that you had no idea going into that film as a director? As a director? Oh, man. I, I mean, just, I, you know, the first time directing, I'm sure there were a lot of, like, you know, learning lessons that you got. I, I think I learned more about what not to do. And I think that's a similar theme for most first-time directors. Like, made all the mistakes you can make. Seriously. Um, and one thing I, my one thing I'll go back on is, if you're going to do a one-er, like a one-shot, like, I love one-shots. Mm-hmm. For anybody who doesn't know what one shot is, it's just a long take of long one shot. Some, some movies are done in one shots, right? They're, that's a, a kind of a novelty thing. Mm-hmm. I think they're never really one shots anymore, but they look like one shots, um, like a Birdman or or yeah. like I think it was two thousand or nineteen seventeen or whatever that World War One one. Yeah. It, oh, go on. No, but that, I think it was a. I haven't seen it actually. I should, but I think that's a one shot. Even though I'm sure they cut it up in places, like it wasn't like they did one hour and a half long. But anyways, my point is, we tried to do a few one shots where it's like you should practice them first because you don't. Number one, you don't know if they're going to be interesting enough. So if you have like four minutes of somebody walking along a dock, which we have before you hit the jump scare. It's like you know you learn that you need to have other things happening. So. Little things like that I learned, and also um, basically give yourself time because sometimes we'd be shooting for like 22 hours, and that's not only grueling for yourself, but it's unsafe. And it's, you know, that they're getting more into that these days, talking about the safety of, of people. And it's totally true. If you're on set for like 20 hours, you're going to make mistakes, and oh, people, yeah. you're dealing in things, especially stunts or anything like that, people can get hurt. So you have to be very careful. I remember one time we almost lost our entire camera rig and $100,000 when we were on this dock. It was my own fault. There was this giant spider that came walking on the dock, and I was the biggest spider I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, holy shit, look at the size of that spider. And everybody walks over that side of the dock. And we almost tipped. Oh. Our, we had like a gimbal on there and a crane like with the camera. And the whole dock almost tipped over. We luckily all ran to the other side before would have been my own fault, but it was pretty funny. But it was a spark, freaking that big. Talking about <laughs> long shots, uh, it's not something new, but it's being done a lot more frequently in films recently. Um, I had a guest on the other night who mentioned that Alfred Hitchcock uh, would love to do long shots, you know, back in the day. Um, now, the viewer unless you are really paying attention, they don't really notice uh, the long shot. Uh, It's more of a background feel that it adds to the intensity of any film. 
do you agree with that? Do you do you think it adds if it's done properly, it adds to the film in a way that the audience just may not even consciously pick up on? I think unless you're in film, like unless you're looking for it, I don't think you notice it. No. I remember Goodfellas is probably a good example of my favorite one or uh, where you know Henry Hill's taking Karen into the Copacabana, mm -hmm. and it's not that long of a shot, but it's amazing. It's just and it follows him through the follows kitchen, him right through the kitchen, through the back door, and that was a real wonder, of course. Before they had cuts and stuff, I think they did that number of six times or whatever it was before they got it right, you know. And that's Scorsese, of course, but it's like that to me. Before I saw got into film, I don't ever remember thinking about it as a wonder. I just remember thinking the feeling that it evoked about what this guy's life was like, right? And I think that's that's what's behind those the great one shots, right? Um, I'm trying to think of any other huge ones that so, I So, as a director, how difficult is it to pull off a good one shot, you know, uh, sequence? You have to be so prepared. Like the Funhouse, for instance, there was a wonder, again, didn't learn my lesson. There was a wonder when they introduced the people that was like five minutes long, six minutes long. Mm -hmm. Like the, when we first go follow Casper from his waking up in the Funhouse to him going in, out into the common room and meeting everybody in the house was a wonder. Wow. We had to cut it down because there was too much time in between some of the movements mm -hmm. and it got boring and it got, uh, you know, you, you lose engagement if you're not doing it right. Yeah. We would have you know, done it again. I would have practiced it more. I would have made sure that, um, we, there's stuff going on at all times because that's just it. You need to have something, something interesting moving yeah. the story even in those wonders otherwise they die and that's the problem we had so i had to cut it into like five chunks okay. and it still it still works luckily um yeah. we didn't have any backups that's the crazy thing that's why me as an editor in one of those situations we didn't back up we had that scene was a wonder i had to like cut it together in so many weird ways because i had to find like reactions from different parts of this uh, it was crazy but it was fun you know <laughs> that does sound like a lot of fun so we're almost out of time Yep. Uh, do you have anything in the works right now that you're working on, writing, getting ready to put out there? Yeah, I just finished filming a, movie <laughs> a couple days ago. It's uh, out in Kelowna, a uh, film I wrote called Keeper of the Real. It's, uh, it's kind of a different, very different from things I've done. It's like a romantic, it's got like a supernatural romantic dramedy if there is such a thing. It's based about a guy's transferring old Super 8 footage and he becomes obsessed with a woman on one of the old reels that is uh, like 60 years old and she starts to visit him in the office uh, at night and he thinks he's going crazy because he's on meds for depression and this, mm -hmm. that and the other. And then there's a huge twist at the end. But it's more of a, it's got a few horror elements but it's very lighthearted and happy my producing partner mike wanted to have a happy ending for once where not everybody dies so i'm like okay <laughs> let's, let's do something like that but i think it's a real special movie it's really got a lot of uh, heart to it i hope um a lot of fun uh, a little dark here and there but definitely a lot of fun and 
yeah, I'm just going to start editing that right away. And nice. uh, I won a contest. Now it's been a while, but in 2020, end of 2020, I won this Page International, which is a big uh, screenwriting contest where I, I, I won, I think there was 8,200 scripts and I got first place in drama. Congratulations. For, for a movie I called, it was called Mississippi Rattlesnake, now it's called Awaken the Wolves. And uh, it's a, a really dark drama about a guy who hitchhikes across the country to visit his dying mother. And on the way, he gets picked up by a tattoo artist, and they are she's on the run from her drug ad, addict ex-boyfriend, and she has carrying something she doesn't know that the mob wants, and he's yeah. a low-level mob guy, and they have to come out. It's kind of like True Romance meets, I don't know, Hell or High Water, but uh, it's been my passion project for years, and I think it's my best. It's my best script, and I'm just I've had a few hit few um, near misses and getting it produced, but that's definitely the one I'm hoping nice. to get next because I think it has a lot of potential, especially for the female lead. Congra yeah. Congratulations on winning first place on that. Out of 80,000, that's an accomplishment. Eight, eight, not 80. But... Oh, eight. Still, that's that's an accomplishment. Yeah. That's no, a huge perfect. accomplishment. Uh, Jason, thank you so much uh, for being on our show. This hour just flew by. It's been fascinating to talk and to hear your thoughts and what went into Funhouse and the evil in us. Guys, if you want to check them out, uh, where is Funhouse available if people want to check it out? Right now in the States, it's on Amazon Prime and Apple TV and uh, DirecTV. Over in Europe, it's on most of the streaming platforms. We haven't got our distribution in Canada yet, so... Hoping to have that up and running soon. That sucks. It's not available in your home country. It's not even available in my home country <laughs> yet. So if you need to see it, hit me up. I'll send you a link. But uh, <laughs> no, I really appreciate you talking to me, John, and all you do for horror, indie horror, and all that. So thank it's been a pleasure no, talking. It's been my pleasure. And thank you for the compliment. Thank you for being on our show. I want to thank all of our viewers for tuning in. Stay safe. And on behalf of Jason and myself, Stay walking, guys. Good night. Thank you. Take care.